Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hours speaking with the author. Today, we'll be talking about Indian country. It's a complicated term. It has a legal definition, or definitions, as nothing in Indian law is simple. It has a colloquial, vernacular usage. The most prominent Indian periodical in America, for instance, is called Indian Country Today. But despite its diverse usages, few scholars have expanded its boundaries to include where most Native peoples actually live these days, that is, in cities. In 1940, the census counted 27,000 Indians in cities. That was about 8% of the Native population. By 1950, it was 45%. In 1980, 53%, and it's jumped since then. But we're lucky to have an eloquent and able historian who's reckoned with this trend. Nicholas G. Rosenthal's Reimagining Indian Country, Native American Migration and Identity in 20th Century Los Angeles, does exactly what its title promises. It reimagines Indian country. And in doing so, incredible new stories are brought to life. From the early origins of red power activism to the subtle resistance of Hollywood stereotyping. A scholar keenly aware of the historiography that he's joining and shaping, Rosenthal has lived up to the promise of Native American history. Nuanced and accountable studies in conversation with broader themes. In this case, migration and mobility, the growth of cities, racialized power structures, and community agency. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Professor Rosenthal, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Today we're discussing your new book, Reimagining Indian Country, Native American Migration and Identity in 20th Century Los Angeles. It's just out from the University of North Carolina Press and part of a wonderful publishing consortium called First Peoples, New Directions in Indigenous Studies. Uh, Before we talk about your persuasive reconception of Indian country in this important work. I'm hoping you can start by introducing yourself and talk about how you, how you arrived at this subject. Okay. Um, well, um, as you said, I am Nick Rosenthal. I am an, uh, now an associate professor of history at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. And I've been working on this project for quite a while. I began it in 1999 when I was a master's student at the University of Oregon. And I was looking for topics in American Indian history. I was interested in the 20th century in particular because it seemed that that was an understudied area, that there was a lot of work to be done in 20th century American Indian history. And I was especially interested in American Indians in cities. Um, I had um, read some things here and there about the relocation program of the 1950s, which was a program in which the federal government began working to move American Indians from reservations to cities. I knew that um, 
that a majority of American Indians had uh, had moved to cities. That is, that a majority of the population was now living in cities by the end of the 20th century. And I was wondering what type of work had been done studying these patterns, studying migration to cities, studying the formation of urban American Indian communities, um, studying the shifting relationships between reservations and cities, and just more generally what it meant for Native America that most of its uh, that most Native Americans now lived in cities. And what I was really surprised to find uh, back in 1999 was that there really hadn't been much work done at all, that historians had not studied these patterns, that historical work had focused uh, mostly on reservations, that is, work on the 20th century had focused mostly on reservations, and there really was not a good understanding of the urbanization of American Indians by historians or really by other scholars at all. Um, the more I thought about this, the more I began to think that this was a problem on a number of levels. Um, first, of course, it meant that our understanding of 20th century American Indian history was really incomplete because this major aspect of American Indian life was not included, it was not understood. But I also began to think that this lack of work on American Indians in cities uh, contributed to certain stereotypes about American Indians. Many people, I think, don't really think about American Indians in cities because they really cling to stereotypes about Indian people as uh, not being modern people, as being primitive, as um, um, far apart and isolated from modern American society on reservations, or even they think about American Indians as having vanished along with the buffalo in the 19th century. So I thought that studying American Indians in cities would be a good way to explore how American Indian people had very much become part of modern American life. And then finally, I realized that this omission in the scholarship also had implications for public policy. Um, I uh, had studied, done some study of federal Indian policy and looked at its the long, troubling history that American Indian people have had with the federal government. I had recently been looking at the past 40 years or so and the improvements in federal Indian policy. Um, but really, I, I came to think, how could federal policy really serve Indian people if there was so little understanding about American Indians in cities, so little understanding about the majority of the population? So those, those are some of the concerns that, that motivated my project right at the beginning and that have continued to motivate the project uh, up until now, um, 13 years later. Can you talk a bit about the, the title? I mean, Indian country is, um, it's both, it, it has been a legal concept in one, in one sense. It's also been um, a sort of mythical concept in some ways too. It's related to differently by uh, natives and non-natives. Um, you know, what is Indian country as it's commonly understood? Why does it need revision? And, and how are you reimagining it here? In, in what sense are you reimagining it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Indian country is most commonly used as a term that indicates the places where Indian people are concentrated. And most often, Indian country refers to reservations or rural communities in which there are lar- a lar- which there is a large Indian population. So, uh, someone might think of South Dakota uh, and or the Northern Great Plains in general and call that Indian country, or they may look at rural Oklahoma and call that Indian country. And I'm arguing that that first Indian people themselves have been reimagining Indian country for the last 100 years to include the cities of the United States. States. That is, that that cities, small towns, and reservations all together make up an Indian country for Indian people. And that, that concept has developed over the 20th century in different ways. And in each chapter of the book, I look at 
the ways the Indian country is being reimagined throughout the 20th century. Um, I also argue, however, that, that scholars and policymakers and the general public in, in, uh, need, need to follow that example and also reimagine Indian country, whether they're thinking about the place of Indian people in modern American society or whether they're thinking about how to formulate public policy. Indian country needs to include cities. It needs to include these other, these other places where Indian people are and that they, uh, that they utilize. Mm. So greater Los Angeles, it's, it's the urban capital, uh, the urban Indian capital of the United States, as you put it. Uh, how did this come to be? What, what elements conspired in the development of Los Angeles that attracted so many different Indian people to it? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Um, the, the book focuses on Los Angeles. Um, in, in some ways, I, I make the case for this being a national study. I argue that there are patterns that we see in Los Angeles that are that are common to other cities throughout the country, that Los Angeles is uh, a particularly good example of American Indian urbanization that can tell us about American Indian urbanization in general. On the other hand, Los Angeles is a special case in that it has always had the largest population of American Indians in the country that's been known, as he said, as the urban Indian capital of the United States. Um, I think it has a lot to do with it being such an important city in the West. Um, it's, it's such a draw to American Indian people from throughout the West, uh, especially in the American Southwest, but throughout the West in general, because it was a city that was growing very quickly in the early 20th century. It offered uh, jobs and other economic opportunities to Indian people. Um, it offered specific opportunities. I have a chapter on American Indians in Hollywood in the film industry in the 1920s and 1930s, and hundreds of Indian people came to Los Angeles specifically to work in the film industry. So um, uh, it was also one of the major destination points for the relocation program in the 1950s and into the 1960s and 1970s. Um, so for, for all these reasons, I think, uh, greater Los Angeles has been an especially attractive migration point for, for Indian people. So migration is, is one of the key concepts here. Um, and it's usually understood as a one way street. You leave one place, you end up in another, but, but that's not what you're talking about necessarily here. You're building on, uh, Henry Yu's suggestion that migration, um, is a process without end comings and goings rather than singular leaving of one place, arriving at the other. Talk about that um, conception of migration in the context of, of Indian people coming and going from Los Angeles. Yeah, I, th I think this is a wider trend in migration studies. I think scholars are more and more moving in this direction where they are not studying simply a movement from A to B where their subjects stay in B and, and, and live out their lives, but rather are seeing migration in these more complex ways as points on a grid. And seeing people move from place to place um, in these more complicated uh, migration routes. And uh, that has always seemed to apply to, to, American, to the American Indian people that, that I study. Um, one of the ways I, I try to get at this is that uh, I'm interested in the relationships between cities and reservations, or even cities, small towns, and reservations, so that throughout the 20th century, you see people who, who live on reservations or who live in rural communities using cities. Um, that is not necessarily moving to cities, but visiting cities or um, using cities to uh, take care of a variety of needs, um, to visit uh, doctors, to attend sporting events, um, to... 
um, go to school. Um, there are also patterns that I see where people move through different cities and different reservations and spend uh, time in these various places um, that, that, that contributes to this to this broader understanding of Indian country. Um, so I track people, for instance, who might grow up on a reservation, uh, go to school in one city, um, work in another city, um, m- uh, go back to the reservation to work for a while, uh, live in another city, and then maybe retire on the, on the reservation. And I think these, these complicated uh, migrations are really part of American Indian experience throughout the 20th century. Um, and part of this this reimagining of of Indian country. Is it fair to ask where in that matrix people situate home? Like where is home um, when when folks are moving back and forth between reservation and Los Angeles, or is it a is it a sort of broader uh, conception of home where both can be that? I think I think people have different ideas about what's home. Um, there are some people who I've talked to who always consider where they grew up. If they, if they grew up in a reservation, they always consider that home. Or even people who grew up in the city, but who res- who regularly visited the reservation of their parents as they were growing up, that that, that, that becomes home. Um, it's a more, I think, traditional understanding of, of Indian homeland, uh, more commonly understood understanding of home. And yet I also talk to people who insist that the city is home, um, that 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 uh, and that's an important concept to them, and that they want to assert that 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 is part of Indian country as well, um, and it helps argue for the continuation of Indian identity in the city. Um, it helps argue for um, resources being directed to urban Indian populations when the city the cities are also thought of as 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 home. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a bit about your methodology for a moment. It seems that one of the tricky things about doing this kind of history, particularly when you're focusing on the early 20th century, uh, where you're not going to necessarily get uh, folks that you can interview, um, that, you know, there, people have complicated sort of multiracial identities, um, and that can often confuse or thwart visibility to the state, to census takers, and, and obviously, and to some degree, it can thwart visibility to historians who are looking at this a century later. You know, you, you talk about some of the, the people who couldn't quite fit firmly into one census category or the other. Maybe they could pass as white. Maybe they could identify it as Indian. Uh, how did you approach... Um, you know, the idea of defining, identifying the community you wanted to study, particularly in the early 20th century. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very tricky thing um, because um, I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons that there hasn't been more work on American Indian people in cities in the early 20th century is that they are so difficult to identify often. Um, they often don't show up in official records. Um, even census records often don't identify American Indians as American Indian. Um, in, in the case of, of my work in Southern California, uh, American Indians are often identified as Mexican. Um, it's, it's, it's very hard to, to identify folks and to, um, um, then go on from there to talk about their experiences. Um, one way that you can do this is to look at American Indian organizations. And I do have a, a chapter where I look on look at American Indian urban organizations from roughly the 1920s through all the way through the 1970s. And so those are groups where people are very consciously identifying as American Indians often engage in activism, either on a national level or on a city-wide level. Um, in other cases, 
you, if you can identify identify American Indian people through the census or through special censuses of uh, California Indians, that's there's a 1928 special census of California Indians that I use, um, comparing that against the federal census, um, looking at settlement patterns, trying to look at occupations, trying to figure out how people fit in to what might be an American Indian community, um, trying to tease some of those things out of the sources. Um, that that's that was one of the most challenging parts of the project. Really, was to was to try to fill out this picture of the early 20th century and where American Indian people are in the city, and if in fact they really are identifying as as uh, American Indian. I just finished reading um, not long ago a classic book in the early 1970s by Hazel Hertzberg on the search for an American Indian identity. You know, she's looking at. Um, pan-Indian organizations, pan-Indian identities in this period in the early 20th century. And I'm curious how maybe that played out in Los Angeles. There's not obviously not just one Indian community. Uh, people are coming from different nations, cultures, languages, experiences. Did the city, did Los Angeles foster a certain kind of pan-Indian identity or did people largely tend to identify with their own individual nation or tribe? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and I in fact uh, that was one of the books I started with um, uh, early in this project, as well as uh, uh, a handful of articles that urban anthropologists produced in the 1970s. I think there was this moment in the 1970s in which some um, scholars, a, a few historians, but more anthropologists, were interested in urban American Indian people, and um, and, and a lot of that work does play with this concept of pan-Indian identity or making this argument that people come to the city, they they kind of drop their tribal identities and they start identifying more as, as Indian in the context of the city as they uh, mingle with other tribes and they start identifying common concerns as urban Indians. Um, I think to some extent that's true in Los Angeles, uh, but I think it has to be tempered with, with the understanding that people do not, in fact, simply give up tribal identities, but that the way that I try to look at it in the book is that people develop very complex, multi-layered identities that make room for both tribal affiliations, um, regional identities, as well as um, intertribal identities in the city. So if you look somewhere like Los Angeles, uh, one way that I try to explore this is through, uh, again, American Indian organizations and the types of organizations that people join and the way that they identify within those organizations. So uh, one good example of this, I think, is a, is a group that was very popular in 1970s Los Angeles, which was the American Indian Athletic Association. And this was a, a, a sports league. It was a sports league um, where the most popular sports were softball, basketball, bowling, and people formed teams to compete in this American Indian Athletic Association. And if you look at the teams, um, some of them were, in fact, intertribal. Um, people uh, formed uh, teams from different organizations like the Los Angeles Indian Center, which was an intertribal organization, a social services social service organization. Um, uh, the Indian Free Clinic, which was a um, urban American Indian health clinic, um, again an intertribal organization serving American Indian people from throughout Los Angeles. Um, so I think people came together, and even simply participating in this organization, which was defined as as Indian, um, people did come together around this sense of being urban Indian, and it's a kind of intertribal sense of being urban Indian. At the same time, some of the other teams really held on to and continued to develop uh, tribal identities. Um, so there was a um, there were teams that 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 
uh, were, were along tribal lines. I think there was a Choctaw team, there was a Navajo team um, in, in these different sports leagues. There um, were also regional uh, teams, uh, people from Oklahoma, from different tribes who nonetheless identified as uh, a, can, a kind of regional Indian identity formed teams within the American Indian Athletic Association as well. I think another good example are the uh, are powwows. Uh, powwows in Los Angeles reflected both tribal and intertribal identities. Uh, powwows became so popular in Los Angeles, and there are so many, that there had to be a schedule organized um, so that they wouldn't overlap with each other. Um, you could go to a, a powwow every, every Saturday, and these powwows really took on regional identity as well. Um, there was a Northern Plains powwow, there was a Southern Plains powwow, there was a powwow that reflected some of the traditions of Northeastern tribes, um, and then there were powwows where where uh, people from various tribal traditions could come together and share and uh, learn from each other, and I think within those powwows, there's uh, there you see the, both the, the tribal identities and the intertribal identities uh, side by side. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally, that that's the way I'm trying to look at look at um, identity in a, in, a, uh, in a place like Los Angeles is that it that uh, people continue to develop tribal identities even as they're coming together as as Indian people and thinking more about being intertribal and that there's room for both of these um, in uh, in individual experience mm-hmm. within the city. It's fascinating. Did in in the 1970s, in particular, did 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 these organizations um, or did I guess I'm curious about the interaction between these organizations and other trends going on. You know, for instance, Black Power in, in Los Angeles in the 1970s, um, you know, just various phases of the Black freedom struggle or um, Mexican organizing. How did that play off each other? Sure. Indian people are very much influenced by the social movements of the 1960s and into the 1970s and um, the, the radicalization of the civil rights movement that leads to such uh, movements as the Black Power Movement and uh, the Brown Power Movement or the Chicano Movement. Um, for, for Indian people, it, it, I think it really begins with the, Alcat- the occupation of Alcatraz Island in 1969 in San Francisco Bay um, that begins what's often thought of as the the red power movement um the um american indian activist movement of the period um that's a this very you know high profile protest it got a lot of media attention brought a lot of attention to indian concerns and the group that then that then capitalized on that the most was the the american indian movement which through the early 1970s continued to use protest as a way of drawing attention to indian concerns and working, and eventually, uh, I think this led to, to big changes in federal Indian policy, in particular the move towards tribal sovereignty and self-determination. Um, the Nixon administration, of all administrations, was very sympathetic to American Indian people and to some of the demands of the Red Power movement. Um, and as I said, that led to real changes in, in federal Indian policy. Um, what I'm most interested, though, in, in the book is how local urban American Indian communities understood the Red Power Movement and adapted the Red Power Movement to the particular concerns within their urban communities. Um, so the way I deal with the Red Power Movement in Los Angeles is that I, I look at how um, different organizations uh, adopted some of the tactics and especially the ideals of the Red Power Movement. And what I find is that that after the after the occupation of Alcatraz, there are some some kind of um, some protests on the same model. That is, um, there are are protests that are meant to to raise attention 
to bring attention to local urban and Indian concerns. So, for example, in Los Angeles, there's an occupation of the Southwest Museum in 1970. Um, the Southwest Museum is the oldest museum in Los Angeles, and it's the largest repository of American Indian items outside the Smithsonian Institute in Washington. Um, and uh, the 1970 protest focused on the display of Indian remains and sacred items. Um, so a group of, uh, of mostly young American Indian people, a lot of college students, they um, showed up one day in December 1970 in the Southwest Museum. They staged a protest. They got some media attention. And that that led to some negotiations with uh, the management of the Southwest Museum to, to try to handle some of these uh, items differently and to, to help them rethink how they are dealing with American Indian remains, right? Um, so that, that style of protest, which is really influenced, which is adapted from the Red Power Movement, but adapted to local concerns, that happens in cities across, across the country in the, in the early 1970s. Um, in other places, like in Seattle, there's the occupation of Fort Lawton, and it really focuses on the need for a cultural center within the city, a place for uh, American Indian people to gather in the city and share experiences and share concerns. Um, I think even more importantly, though, however, is the influence that the Red Power Movement has on organizations that were already working within uh, um, within American Indian communities and the, the, the changes in, in mindset within these organizations. Um, one thing that the Red Power Movement did is it led to a lot more funding for these types of organizations through the 1970s. Um, the, the federal government starts funneling a lot more money um, from the from the war on poverty and the Office of Economic Opportunity into cities for the first time. The Red Power Movement shows the federal government that that there are Indians in cities and that they need the same types of resources that Indians on reservations had started getting through the war on poverty and the Office of Economic Opportunity. So so there's money coming into cities all of a sudden, money coming into organizations um, that were already there and to people who are interested in starting new organizations to, to serve urban American Indians. So in a place like Los Angeles, there are new organizations to treat Indian alcoholics in the city. There are new organizations to um, provide health care, that is urban American Indian clinics. Um, organizations like the Los Angeles Indian Center, which had been a, a self-help organization for, for American Indians in the city since the 1930s, which had been run on donations and bake sales and and, uh, and, uh, and and the like um, suddenly become multi-million dollar social service organizations. So, so there's there's new attention to Indian concerns in the city, and then even the people who run these organizations, I, I argue, begin reflecting the ideals of the Red Power Movement, and that they're they're much more forceful in demanding resources for Indian people in the city, but they're also um, insistent that previous attempts to, to deal with American Indian issues had, had neglected Indian identity and that any solution to Indian problems, any effort to address Indian concerns had to foreground American Indian identity and culture, um, that that's an essential element in addressing American Indian issues. So, for instance, these, these organizations that are designed to treat American Indian alcoholics, they draw upon mainstream methods of treatment like Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12-step recovery program, but they also insist that an American Indian identity needs to be nurtured as, as part of the path to sobriety. Um, 
for um, these urban Indian health clinics, for example, they they argue that they need they need an Indian staff, right, to really understand um, American Indian concerns for American Indian people to feel comfortable in coming into these clinics. Um, they need American Indian doctors and nurses, or just simply people working at the desk who are going to understand American Indian concerns. And this is a real change from organizations of the past that have focused so much on assimilation, that were run by non-Indians, that argued that for Indian people to succeed, they had to kill Indian culture, they had to kill the Indian to save the man. You know, it goes back to the 19th century and policies of assimilation that developed uh, in the late 19th century. Um, so, again, overall, my argument is the Red Power Movement really, really uh, forces these changes, right? It, it uh, funnels more resources to Indian people in the city, but it also changes the mindset. It, it makes the case clearly that Indian culture and identity are important to Indian people and are going to continue to be part of Indian experience, even as Indian people leave reservations and move to the city. That's wonderful because so often I feel like histories are, are declensionist, um, you know, especially Indian history so often is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what you're presenting is actually, um, you know, people's efforts creating um, real dramatic change uh, mm-hmm. in, in not just, you know, material conditions, but also in, in um, conceptions of people. So that's, a, that's, that's great. Um, so uh, yeah, along those lines of the assimilation campaign, I want to step back a little bit um, and talk about the relationship between American Indians and the federal government. Um, many of the sort of big studies on uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the early 20th century or on the assimilation campaign, again, are stories about reservations, about um, people being taken from reservation communities and brought to boarding schools or uh, superintendents on reservations, things like that. Um, what can you tell us about the relationship between uh Indians living in Los Angeles and the federal government before the relocation program, um, and particularly around you know assimilation ideas or education. What, what was going on in Los Angeles that wasn't maybe going on uh, on reservations? Well, I think um, I think that cities become part of the assimilation program before the before relocation before relocation in the 1950s. Um, it's not a big part, but but it does form uh, part of um, the larger um, of the larger assimilation policy, and I think we see this most clearly in the link between boarding schools and cities. That is, uh, American Indian people who went to federal Indian federal uh, boarding schools were often encouraged to not go back to the reservation when they got there uh, when they finished um, their education, but rather to move to cities and to use the skills they had learned through boarding schools and to continue to assimilate into American life um, by, by, by living in cities. And so for Indian women, this most often meant um, becoming domestic servants um, in, in, in urban areas. Uh, for men, it often meant becoming unskilled or semi-skilled laborers uh, because this is the type of education that was focused upon in these these boarding schools, um, so in a city like Los Angeles, you see you do see in the early 20th century um, many people, especially coming through the Sherman uh, Indian School in Riverside, which is just east of Los Angeles, and forming a community um, or or settling into the city throughout the early 20th century. At, at that point, there there's not much more contact with the federal government. Um, the, from the perspective of the federal government, the city is a place that will sever their relationship with, with Indian people. Um, that's part of the point, I think, of 
trying to move Indian people to cities um, in the early 20th century and all the way into the relocation program is that it's a way for the federal government to fulfill its responsibilities and in, in, in from its perspective. Um, you know what I what I think happens is is that Indian people move to the city, but they do not give up those Indian identities. They they come together in the city. They form organizations. Um, they form advocacy organizations. They try to influence Indian policy. They argue that they've been given these these educations and they've been taught to be American citizens, and now they're realizing their American citizenship by becoming politically active. Um, so the the consequences are, are somewhat un, unintended for for um, um, for the federal government um, in that um, that um, you know Indian people do not follow the the types of assimilation paths often that they've set out for them. So you you raised earlier um, briefly the the entertainment industry in Los Angeles. Um, this is one of the most fascinating chapters in your book. Um, and you know, a certain kind of entertainment and performance was a prime employer of Indian people in Los Angeles. What are some of the more interesting stories you found here, or what was surprising uh, about the role Indian people played in the entertainment industry when you when you came to look at this subject? Well, the, uh, to some to some extent, I knew going into the to the project that American Indian people were were present in the film industry. Um, but that they hadn't really been studied, that there had been a lot of work on imagery of American Indians in movies, in film, um, in, in Hollywood, um, that um, some film historians had talked about how there was a kind of transition from Wild West shows to to um, the early film industry and how there were um, a lot of working cowboys, for example, that had made the transition from from working in the West to performing in Wild West shows and then um, using those same skills and performing in Hollywood movies. Um, but there hadn't been a whole lot of work on American Indian people. So uh, to some extent, I just wanted to, to document those experiences um, to make the case that American Indian people were also taking part in the development of the film industry, that they were also making the transition from, from um, um, in some cases, fighting the U.S. military to performing those battles in the Wild West shows of the late 19th and early 20th century to then reenacting some of those battles on film in the, as the, the film industry grew in the early 20th century and as the film industry developed the Western as an especially popular genre. Um, what, um, what then I really got interested in and which, which uh, really structures the, that chapter of the book is this tension that American Indian people began to feel between the types of um, stereotypes that they were often performing on film and what they themselves knew about American Indian culture and identity. Um, in some ways, um, this chapter was a was a study of American Indian agency about how they had uh, claimed these places uh, in the film industry and worked to insist upon um, uh, trying to um, provide more accurate um, portrayals of American Indians on film. And on the other hand, this is also a story of the profound limitations that they faced because to, to a large extent, these efforts really were not that successful. Um, Hollywood uh, directors um, did not take Indian concerns very seriously. They continued to, to write scripts. They continued to insist that American Indian people 
um, act out these particular roles. And often the choice came down to, to working in Hollywood and performing these stereotypes or finding another way to make a living. And for the most part, American Indian people who had these opportunities continued to work in the film industry. Um, what I found most surprising, I think, was that some American Indian actors then um, found other avenues in which to advocate for American Indian people. Um, they used their notoriety as Hollywood stars in order to give public lectures, in order to assemble their own dance troops, um, in order to write books um, that that um, uh, detailed American Indian culture and argued for the value of American Indian culture and American Indian identity, um, and then even found ways to influence uh, federal Indian policy. So I focus in the book and on a few actors in particular that are able to do this, people like Luther Standing Bear, uh, Lakota Sioux, um, actor, one of the more famous actors of the early, uh, Indian actors of the early 20th century, or Richard Davis Thunderbird, a Northern Cheyenne man who grew up on the reservation, went to Carlisle as the Luther Standing Bear, that is Carlisle Indian School, um, worked on the reservation for a while, and then had a career, entertainment career, and a career as an Indian activist. Um, both Luther Standing Bear and, um, and uh, Thunderbird have really, really similar stories. Um, so they became some of the, mo the more prominent American Indian activists of the early 20th century. And uh, I argue that this wouldn't have been possible without uh, the, the notoriety that they gained as, as actors, as, uh, as film stars. And that, um, that they were, were struggling throughout, I think, with, with, uh, ha with portraying American Indian people in this way on film, but that they also were able to see that working in film gave them the notoriety that allowed them to work for American Indian people in other ways. Um, and some of their critiques of Indian policy um, and, uh, are, so, are so sharp and sound so familiar because they sound a lot like what groups like the American Indian Movement were saying in the, in the 1970s. Um, so there's this, this much longer history of American Indian activism um, that, that, that predates the, the Red Power Movement in, in cities like Los Angeles that go, go back all the way to the beginning of the 20th century. Hmm. So as we get close to the end of our interview, um, you know, when I was preparing for this interview, I read uh, one of your articles from 2006 about the new Indian historiography. And, it, and it's clear from that article and from this book here that you're someone who's uh, very familiar with the historiography and you're thinking about uh, where it should be going and where this sits, sits in the historiography. Um, I'm hoping you can talk a bit about that. I mean, where, how might other scholars build upon this reimagination of Indian country and where you think um, New Indian history should go from here. If that's a, if that's a useful concept or organizing principle for this history, um, you know where you where you see things going. Yeah, that's a the a good question and a weighty question. Um, my you know my, I had a lot of historiographical concerns going into this project and concerns that have continued to develop over the life of the project. Um, I have historiographical concerns that are very specific to, to American Indian history, which I, which I spoke about earlier, which is that simply urban experience and American Indian relationships with cities are so important throughout the 20th century, and yet they're so understudied. And so I think that this, this book makes a major contribution to, um, to American Indian history simply because it, it develops 
our understanding of American Indians in cities. Um, there's more work in that area now than when I began the project 13 years ago. There have been a, a handful of books, and I think there are more books and articles in progress that that now examine various aspects of urban American Indian experience. Um, so that's that's one one historiographical concern. Um, I would now say that there's a, a kind of wave of scholarship even on on urban American Indian experience, and that's a that's a really important thing, and just, that's something this book contributes to. I was also I also developed a, a concern um, more broadly about how American Indian history fits into the historic historiography of United States history. Um, this this came this developed more as I was doing my coursework as a doctoral student at UCLA. Um, I saw a lot of really interesting things going on in in 20th century United States history. Um, a lot of really engaging work, and I was always struck by how few conversations I could find between American Indian history and this what I thought was very exciting work in 20th century United States history. And I began to wonder why that was the case. I began to wonder why so few American Indian historians in uh, of, of 20th century American Indian history um, were were kind of talking to people who weren't also American Indian historians. Um, I, I thought that early American historians and American Indian historians had had been having these conversations for quite some time. That is that. If you were an early Americanist, you really couldn't go about your work without seriously considering American Indian people. And if you were if you were doing American Indian history in the colonial period in early America, right, you were part of the larger community of early Americanists. To some extent, I thought this was also true for the 19th century, but it really wasn't true for the 20th century at all. Um, and I began to think that that. You know, 20th century United States historians didn't spend much time thinking about American Indians or really think that American Indians were all that important to the things that they did. Um, and I wanted to change that. I wanted to to encourage American Indian historians to make connections to these larger conversations um, because I thought it would it would be fruitful for everyone. I thought that um, American Indian experience has a place within these larger conversations, and these larger conversations can enrich our understanding of American Indian experience. Um, so in each chapter of the book, I try to make some of these broader connections. I try to make the case that American Indian history is very important to broader history, uh, broader conversations throughout um the field of 20th century United States history. Yeah. You know, if it's, if it's problematic at the level of history writing, it's even more so at the level of teaching. I'm, I'm a teaching assistant at the mm -hmm. university of Georgia for 20th century U S history survey courses. Um, and you know, I'm TAing for wonderful professors, but, but nevertheless, um, you get, uh, about, 10 minutes on the assimilation campaign and then the story goes away entirely and you might get another 10 minutes at the end of the semester on the red power movement. But, but in between it's, it's literally nothing. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. So. Those are, those are the kind of the two moments. And I, I used to blame 
U.S. historians in general for this, but um, but now but now I think American Indian historians really mm-hmm. really should shoulder shoulder much of the weight of this. I think that in in early American history, for instance, early Americanists only started taking American Indians seriously when American Indian historians started making a case for why they had to. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, when a book like Richard White's The Middle Ground came out and uh, and or, or even going back even further, Gary Nash's Red, Black and uh, oh, shoot, uh, uh, Red, Black and White, mm-hmm. Peoples of Early America. Right. More or less, more or less the title. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I began wondering why were there weren't some of those books for the for the 20th century um, and that when those books came out, then there would be. Then those types of um, you know there would be more more American Indian content in a 20th century U.S. history course, or or American Indians would show up more in textbooks that cover the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually I think this is being done more and more now. Um, again, it's it's when I started this project I felt like no one was doing this type of thing, um, but now I can see uh, a handful of works again that are emerging um, that that do make these connections. Um, Willie Bowers' recent book on uh, on uh, the Round Valley Reservation and uh, migrant labor, um, right, I think, right. is a really good example of this about you know about connecting American Indian history to these broader conversations. And in fact, wage labor in general, uh, books by Brian Hosmer or Colleen O'Neill, I think they too mm-hmm. are thinking about these connections. Or um, Alexandra Harmon's uh, recent book on, uh, uh, on uh, wealthy Indians and you know kind of. Uh, merging uh, economic history with American Indian history. So I think the field is actually moving in this direction now, um, but it's, it's kind of taken a while to, to, to get to get things going. Mm-hmm. And I hope that this book contributes to that, to that broader historiographical trend and that, that trend continues. I'm quite confident it will. Um, finally, I mean, do, are you working on anything now? Are you thinking about another subject to take on? Um, yeah, I, I am. Um, and, um, you know, I, it's... Um, it's a little daunting to honestly to get into a second project in part um because I know now what what a project entails um you know 13 years later after I began this this project I'm, I have the book and I finally have the book in my hand so um it's a very serious uh, a decision to make um um but um I I'm very excited I'm very excited to get back into the archives um, to start working on another project, and uh, the, what I'm thinking about now is is a book that focuses, or a project that focuses on Native America in the 1920s and 1930s. Mm-hmm. And my thinking is that this is an especially um, important period for for Native America, um, a period that hasn't really been identified as an especially important period. Um, I think that that historians of 20th century American Indian history often identify World War II as a kind of turning point. Mm-hmm. For Native America, um, a point in which American Indian people engage um, in the war effort, um, and their world kind of opens up a little bit more, and they start looking beyond the boundaries of the reservation, and um, for instance, uh, urbanizing, but also more generally integrating into larger currents of American uh, of American society and culture. Um, I, I, I want to look a step back a little bit and look at the 1920s and 1930s and see the trends of the 1920s and 1930s that, that, that are, that are building the foundation for this major shift during World War II, or even arguing perhaps that the major shift begins earlier in the 1920s and 1930s. And I think there are a variety of ways to go about this. I think we need to look at the experiences of, uh, American Indian veterans who, who come back from the Great War. Um, I think we, we need to look at, um, the ways that Things are changing on reservations. Um, 
uh, political leadership is is engaging the world beyond the reservation as early as as this period. Uh, I think we I want to continue looking at at urbanization and uh, wage labor, migrant labor. Um, uh, I think there's more work to do on Indian participation in the work programs of the New Deal, um, in um, the uh, engaging the, the tourist industry. Um, I think that you know a lot of this work is being done in some in different places, and in some in some ways this might be a partly a synthetic work drawing together some of the literature that's out there. Um, but I don't think the case has been made yet for this being an especially important uh, important period. So um, that's that's the direction I'm thinking right now. Well, I look forward to having you back on the program in 2025. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been a, been a real pleasure speaking with you, Nicholas Rosenthal, about your new book, Reimagining Indian Country: Native My Native American Migration and Identity in 20th Century Los Angeles. It's just out from the University of North Carolina Press. I highly encourage anybody interested in Native history to pick up a copy. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Gregory McNamee, editor of The Only One Living to Tell, the autobiography of a Yavapai Indian by Mike Burns from the University of Arizona Press. We're on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all the past podcasts. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. If you like our Facebook page, you can post questions, comments, or suggestions for new books you'd like to hear discussed on this program. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein, and I hope you join us again next month for another new book in Native American Studies. Thanks.